Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. As a standout collegiate player and a coach at every level from youth to pro, Harrison Bernstein is still finding ways to tap his potential. Currently, he is focusing efforts on soldiers to sidelines, his nonprofit assisting vets who are making the transition back to civilian life. Empowering these warfighters with coaching skills and education, this organization sets them up for their new purpose. Harrison is still deeply passionate about the role of coach and has continued to inspire others through his podcast, Everyday Coaches Podcast. Here it is, episode 458. Hey, Power Athlete Nation. Welcome to another episode of the premier podcast of strength and conditioning. Hey, oh, we're dropping the ing. But, but I'm we sitting are here. The, well, we are the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. You are not wrong, John. No, we are the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. We are also Power Athlete Radio, which, what do we do? We break hearts, melt faces, and hit you with a fire hose of information at every turn. And today is no different with episode 458 with our good friend Harrison Bernstein. Yes, and Harrison Bernstein, he is the, the founder of Soldiers 2 Sidelines. We get into a little bit of the purpose, the reason, the founding that Harrison went as a football coach at the time, but then his performance coach backgrounds were up, down, and around. And this, this is a pretty juicy episode, whether you are a parent or a coach or preparing to to teach in any way, shape, or form, because we talk about some impact and how to empower performance and melt some minds as well. I think all too often we get stuck in this idea of just good coach and bad coach, and I think that there's more to it than that. And I enjoy the conversation for the fact that there are pieces in understanding your responsibility as a coach to go out and influence individuals in positive ways and make them better. And I think uh, the way and the work he's doing in terms of bringing back vets and getting them into coaching, whether it be performance coaching, lacrosse, football, and whatnot, and re-giving them purpose, I think it's, uh, it's an amazing charity. And um, it's all, you know, donation run. Uh, so if you want to, you know, contribute to the cause, go to his website. And uh, they offer it for free, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's something that's, that's really, <laughs> really needed. And to be able to repurpose you know, I mean, I guess that's really what they're doing. They're taking these soldiers who are coming home, repurposing them in a new way and giving them new skills to go out and, and make a difference and influence people. Yeah, and I'm experiencing one of their their virtual conferences right now. So normally it would be in person, but they've transitioned to, to week-long Zoom conferences, but they're bringing in experts in said sport. Mine happened to be lacrosse, but he also mentioned they do men's and women's basketball football and then strength and conditioning as part of that but they bring in world-class coaches to teach and prepare coaches to run whether it's it's middle school high school college or pro and the 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 kicker of all this it's not just the education once you go through these these seminars that they put together virtually or in the future in person you then join their their collective and their network so you get access to the Soldiers 2 Sidelines Network that can help mentor you one-on-one within the sport but or connect you and make calls for you to get a coaching gig. Well, I mean, think about if uh, if a coach gets a ton of resumes and they mm-hmm. don't really know an individual and then they get a phone call from, you know, Harrison Bernstein who was talking about, hey, this individual went through a deal. He's a switched-on cat. you got to give him a shot. That definitely pays 
You know, it's kind of like our power athlete, you know, block one coaches network. Mm -hmm. When we get reached out to by coaches who are looking for interns or for people that want to get into the strength conditioning field, we have a deep pool of individuals to recommend to them. So, but that comes from being a trusted resource and having done the work and he's definitely got the chops and the experience. So I'm excited for this one. Thanks for getting him on. And, uh, Oh yeah. So, well, thank you to my pal, Johanna Zabel out there. And she is the, the performance director for soldiers Tooth sidelines and ah. now found us, got us the founder and Sweet. man, he's on a mission. Their whole team is on a mission and we have a, a very awesome episode that we'll be sharing for a long time. Awesome. Let's do it. Go Harrison. Welcome to power athlete radio. Thank you very much for joining us. We have a lot of friends in common and a lot of ground to cover and a lot of ground to cover today. And let's let's hit the ground running. If you wouldn't mind giving a one, two, three, 20 minute introduction to about yourself to our audience, and then we'll play off there because, man, I'm excited for today's conversation. You are excited. You've been giddy all day. I mean, a training this morning. He was all jacked up about this podcast because I listened to Harrison give a presentation last night and I got. I couldn't sleep. I was so excited to to like a kid on Christmas, Mr. McQuilkin. Very much so. So Harrison, take it away. Geez, Tex, you don't have to be so flattering, but <laughs> uh, I appreciate that you're able to listen to me for that long. I was even getting tired of myself uh, hearing myself talk, but uh, yeah. So I'm Harrison Bernstein. I am the founder and executive director of Soldiers to Sidelines. We are a nonprofit um, veteran service organization, and we provide service members and veterans renewed sense of purpose uh, by developing them to become expert coaches in sports, and then we connect them to their communities as a coach. Um, we've been in existence for seven years. Uh, it was a project of mine for probably the first five years, because uh, all the while, uh, I was a football coach and a strength and conditioning coach, and I, I had not served in the military. But as you guys know, being a coach, you you know, you travel around a lot and you move around a lot. And I got uh, a ton of experience at, you know, the high school level, division one, division two, II, division three, uh, and even in the NFL. And throughout this time, I was able to uh, earn some certifications and really establish a bit of credibility in sports performance. And while I was coaching for the Washington Redskins at the time uh, in the, in the mid two thousands, I was also teaching in the master's program of exercise science at George Washington University. And, uh, you know, I just got uh, good at, at writing curriculums and uh, meeting some awesome people. And I just one day had this out of body experience when, you know, when I was in the weight room, actually it was, I tell the story, I was in a one-on-one -on -one workout with uh, Santana Moss and only because he wasn't able to attend the group lift that day because he was watching film and we were doing a makeup session and he had some individual specific needs that we just had to address like with his legs and everything. So, um, you know, we had, he had like this one special program to kind of handle some of his specific needs and, you know, he, he's a great worker and an awesome person. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever get to meet uh, Santana, but if you do, he's just a tremendous person. But as I'm watching this unbelievable athlete you know, essentially do what I'm telling him to, I'm like, why is he listening to me? Like, this guy is the best in the world. And then I was like, why do I even have this job? Like, why, why, so you why had I, in like an existential moment, like an out of body almost? Yes. 
big time. Like, cause in my head, we come up with all these programs to get our athletes better, but I'm like, I'm not getting Santana Moss better. Like he's, he's already so fast. I mean, could we get him faster? Yes. Could we make him a little more athletic? Yeah. But it comes with such a high risk of injury that it's not worth it. And his level is already so good anyway. If he just is his natural self on Sunday, we're going to win a lot of games. So really, it's like, can we just make him feel as good as possible so he can be his authentic self on game day and we're going to win? So I'm having like all these thoughts and I'm like, well, he, he's listening to me because there's a lot of research that goes behind all this, but he's, he's believing in the system. And it's the belief that gives him the confidence to get into these states of flow. So I was like, man, these dumbbells aren't doing shit, right? Like, <laughs> what are we doing? So I just had this thought. Then it was like, all right, so what are all the things that would make the best coach? Right. Cause then I was thinking, well, is his wide receivers coach thinking this way? Is his, you know, is his position coach thinking about, you know, how to make him the best? I mean, is it really the route? Is it really the play? I mean, that's part of it. So I was like, well, I think if you're going to have to, if you're going to be the ultimate coach, you would want to know a bunch about sports performance. So biomechanics, you're going to want to know about sports psychology. You're going to want to know about cognitive behavioral therapy. You're going to want to know something about bioenergetics, right? You're going to have to know something about the actual sport, right? So you're going to have to know if you're, if you're coaching football, you, you have to know the technique and the strategy behind it. So if you can know everything there is to possibly know to make our athletes become the best version of themselves possible, um, that would be worth it. And then you would become the best coach. So since I was teaching at night, I was, I would just start writing curriculums, like just researching and reading and researching and reading. And I would create these curriculums and pitch them to George Washington University to the master's program and be like, Hey, what about this course? And most of the times it'd be like, no, we don't have room for it. But every once in a while, they'd be like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Or, hey, that's a really good topic. Can you make it part of a course that already exists? So I just like wrote all of this coursework and just kept it dormant on my computer. And, uh, you know, got fired from the Redskins as everybody does. Right? <laughs> what happens? That's a common and, thread with the Redskins. Everybody gets fired eventually, right? Well, it's not just the Redskins. It's really oh, it's the NFL. sports. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, one thing's too. for sure. Yep. You're going to get fired, but you also get rehired. And so in leaving, I, I started a sports performance business, uh, you know, giving actually just getting work for all of my grad students because, you know, they don't really have any money. And I was like, well, I can show you how to make money. So I had the sports performance business after I left the Redskins and then started coaching high school football. And then I had this curriculum. And then a buddy of mine on the high school staff, we were, we were actually a really good high school. It's called uh, Gonzaga College High School in Washington, DC. And I mean, we rose to, I don't know, whatever, like number eight in the country, like we played a national schedule. Um, we actually have a funny story because we lost in the championship uh, my first year to a team called Good Counsel, whose two wide receivers was Stefan Diggs and Kendall Fuller. So, um, that, that was a tough day. We got waxed. But anyway, um, <laughs> so my buddy's like, hey, we have all of these service members coming back from the Middle East, back to the Washington, D.C. area. You know, why don't we bring some of these guys out to the field and teach them how to coach football? I was like, 
yeah, that's an awesome idea. Let's do that. He was like, yeah. He's like, I know some, some guys that would love to do this. Um, he goes, but, you know, I always thought maybe we could make this like a, a nonprofit organization. And I, I think we should call it Soldiers of Sidelines and you should run it, Harrison. You should do it. I was like, no, what? <laughs> Sounds no. like every grade. Were, were you guys drinking? No, we were at practice, you know, <laughs> well, you <laughs> which were, doesn't preclude anyone yeah, from drinking. I'm just saying say, we weren't. Know. Okay. Right. It, it's a human performance thing. Like it just, does sound you know. like a kind of a Friday night bar. Yeah, we'll do this thing and you should run it. Yeah, exactly. That's, ex that's literally what happened. And, uh, and I immediately was like, no way, man. Like getting back into coaching. Now I'm taking like the sports performance thing and bringing it back to coaching defensive backs and to get back in the NFL and do all this. He's like, no, no, we should, you should do it. So he pestered me for like six months on this deal. And eventually I was like, you know what? All right, you, you make a good point. The, our, our service members and veterans are the perfect type of people to develop into coaches. They already have all this innate leadership training from their time in the service, right? And they have a proclivity to wanna to serve their communities anyway, right? So sounds good. Oh, and by the way, I have like decades of curriculum work just sitting dormant on my computer. <laughs> so, uh, I said, okay, this is what we'll do. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll put my curriculum into a seminar format and we'll try to do one. And we had connections over at Walter Reed Hospital and they opened up their doors for us to do one seminar uh, to develop service members and veterans in, into coaches. And uh, we had like six folks show up at the first one. It was like in the winter of 2015. So what, what was the coaching focus? Was it football? Was it weightlifting? It was football. It was football. So this was all football. Because remember, my buddy was like, let's teach our service members how to become football coaches. And I was like, if we're going to do that, we're going to teach them everything, like the bioenergetics and all the other stuff I was talking about. And so we did one. And it was like a really powerful success, not because there was a ton of people there, but because the folks that did show up, we it was it was essentially life changing. And I didn't realize the impact that that was really going to have. Um, Cause initially I, I didn't serve in the military. So I was like, okay, we can create an army of better coaches out there, better servicing our kids and our young athletes. Cause I mean, you guys go out to the soccer fields right now or some of these pop Warner games. I mean, there's some horrible things happening out there. So I was sure. like, I'm going to try to nip this in the bud and create an army of good coaches. But then I started to realize the impact on the service member on the veteran was way more impactful because <clears throat> they're recognizing they're a renewed sense of purpose, right? So as folks are going through this transition um, and you guys as athletes know what that's like, like when you're leaving the NFL, that's uh, <clears throat> hard. You don't really know who you are anymore. You're a football player your whole life and then now you're not. Uh, I, you know what? Um, I I talked to Matt Vincent about this yesterday in that um, so many players wrap their whole identity in the fact that they play this game. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're, you don't get to play that game anymore, and it's not by your, necessarily your choice. I mean, very few people get to walk away under their, you know, un, you know, under their terms. So that idea of, like, being able to snatch away and steal kind of your identity is really pretty fascinating. And uh, I know for me personally, I didn't try to really wrap my identity in the fact that I was a football player. I still tried to keep... Uh, you know, other interests and do other things and get involved. And 
I think so many times guys fall in love with the life and who they are and, you know, the accolades and the admiration and, you know, the cheering of the crowd. And, and man, it's a, it's a scary thing. I think, um, you know, they were, I, I read a, uh, an article from the, actually it was, you know, I'm on this NFL kind of email list and they were talking about, you know, uh, they were relating PTSD to ex players who are exhibiting many of the um, same elements of PTSD from leaving the NFL. Cause this idea of like, you know, the, the future's unknown and who am I? I don't no longer have my identity. And I always thought that was kind of an interesting approach and uh, something that the NFL doesn't do a ton. Like it's kind of, and you know this, like while you're in it, they're not talking about you being out of it. And even though they yeah. put some, some things in place to, Hey, you know, for your you know future or whatnot. No, they want you to be as focused on that. You're going to go out and kill it every Sunday. And the last thing they want to do is prep you for the day that it doesn't get to happen anymore. Yeah. And I think that makes sense. Like that's what you would want to do, right? That's your job and your vocation at the time you should be all in. Um, and this is something that all people go through is transition, right? Um, do you have kids? Have you lost a child? Were you married? Did you get a divorce? Did you get fired from your job? It's very easy to, for all of us to confuse our identities and our roles right? Because we're all looking to belong to something. And I did that. I mean, I had a, a huge like identity crisis after playing college football. Like all I, w I was, I was Harrison Bernstein, you know, the good football player. And everything I did in my life was get good grades and figure out like lift, run, get faster, get better, be the best I can be in football. Like I obsessed over it and obsessing over it. You know, the work every day made me a pretty good football player, but like football, unlike basketball or tennis, there's a day you will never do that again, ever. <laughs> and, and flag football is not the same. No. <laughs> and, and, and when you take that helmet off for the last time, it is so final. And what, what happened to me is I was experiencing a, a death, right? And, and so many of us do that where we have our physical bodies right? That lives and dies, but we have our symbolic self as well. It's, it's what we imagine ourselves to be. And when you go through a transition, like leaving a football team or leaving the military, it, it becomes really hard. It's like, you don't even know who yourself, who you are anymore because your symbolic self has literally died. It ceases to exist. That was just stuff that I did. I just, I, I played football, right? These folks have served in the military, but now it's like the wound, there's this hole there that requires healing, right? And, and what, what can I belong to? What, what, what is my purpose if I don't have football, if I don't have the military anymore? So for service members, it's, sports is a great segue, right? Because you get to serve your community, people need you, right? And in order to be the best coach of others, you have to be the best coach of you. So that requires deep introspection. So that becomes like this healing process. You know, I went through it and I know that I've been essentially reborn in, a, in, in some ways in finding, you know, a, a, a deeper, more actual, like uh, the real purpose for me. Um, and, and I found that in coaching. So now Soldiers of Sidelines provides that for our transitioning service members and veterans. And it's taken off, like, especially folks who um, are really 
really working on healing their, their post-traumatic stress. And I'd love to highlight how, how big it is that offering the different sports. So now it's not just football. Can you highlight the different opportunities that are out there for people looking to get involved? Yeah. Uh, so right now we have, uh, we have a line of effort in football, lacrosse, men's and women's basketball, and sports performance, right? Um, and so it's open to you know men, women, every branch of service. All that is required is that you have served uh, the military or our country at, at some time in your life. Um, and, and that's why it's free, right? Because service members, they sacrifice so much. And you know it's not even about combat, really. So few p- folks actually see combat. But you, you sacrifice your time because once you decide to serve your country and in the military, you're no longer in control of what you get to do. They, they tell you where you're living and really what jobs you're going to do. And then you're going to do that. And that's a big sacrifice. You just lose your autonomy to a large degree uh, when you do that. And there's a lot to be said for this. And just the fact that you do that makes you already a good role model for younger athletes to understand what selfless service is, is really all about. So you guys are a federally registered 501c3? Yes, sir. So, um, and you, you know, everything's given away. So where does your funding come from? Is it big corporations, individuals, or a little bit of combination of both? It's a combination of both, right? Um, you know, what's great is the power of the community, right? So everybody wants to help service members, right? And veterans, right? Because we understand that there's a need there and they have sacrifice. But the, the best way to do that is rather than giving them a thing, but give them a, a purpose. And when the community does that, giving them a purpose is like, okay, hey, coach our high school or coach our youth team. Uh, that helps, you know, five, 10, $15, uh, you know, on a monthly basis helps us support these folks to get these jobs and really improve themselves and become the best coach possible. Because, you know, I, I think coaching has more power than a medical doctor because the medical doctor you, you see every once in a while and sometimes in life-threatening situations, but the, the coach you see every single day that has so much influence on these young people's lives. So that should be done with uh, care and expertise. So to develop that, that requires like tons of coursework and developmental opportunities that we provide all of our soldier coaches. And in order to provide all this stuff for free or at like no cost requires funding. So with the community, you know, donates, you know, five, 10, $15 on a monthly basis that helps us really develop all these soldier coaches and then integrate them into the communities. Can you go into depth on like the the structure of the program? I mean, you were talking about um, you know education modules and a lot of things that you develop for the university. Can you take us through uh, the process? You know, like um, you know, new military vet comes out and enters into your program, and he wants to I don't know learn to be a lacrosse coach. Can you take us through that process, and more importantly, the education and all the steps? Yeah. So first and foremost, you just have to be curious, right? And if you have served, they'll go to our website, hear about our seminars. Mostly it's word of mouth or social media or something. And it just requires a name and an email and some just basic information. And then you register for like this three, uh, this free one week long coaching certification seminar. And like the one we're in right now is for lacrosse. Okay. And 
uh, it's free. You just need to show up. So again, here they are sacrificing time because it's long and it's involved. Like Tex, you were there last night. That's, you know, it's two hours each night, Monday through Friday, and there's supplemental coursework, online coursework that you do. And then it's three and a half hours on Saturday morning. So in total, it's about like 20 hours of time in the middle of your busy life that you have to um, sacrifice to, to learn how to become a better coach. And then you get certified and the certification is not accredited yet. I'll say that not accredited yet. So it really doesn't mean anything. And as you guys know, like you don't just take a course and you're like, all right, I got it. I'm a, I'm a coach, man. The, accredi- I'm an expert. the accreditation process, we actually, you know, for the power at the methodology course, went through the steps, sent text out to uh, this seminar kind of, um, I guess it was uh, almost NCCA, like a- they put on, yeah, seminar. I mean, we were well, there it, with- It was more of a, like a, like a workshop. workshop. It was a workshop, workshop yeah. on how to go through accreditation. And mm-hmm. we came back and realized that uh, it has nothing to do with the information. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, you know, like in my mind, I think that like it's a quality control where somebody analyzes your information and when we got through the end of this thing, we realized well, that the the other organizations there, we were at that moment the only health centric one. Yeah, it was performance uh, and like uh, ambulance, EMT, engineers, all these different people through the NCCA and the NCCA. For reference to our lis- uh, listeners, they manage the NSCA, ACE, uh, NASM. So the big personal training health centric they make sure those companies are adhering and staying accredited. And it was more had to do about the test and the picking of questions. Uh-huh. And like, and, it was, uh, you know, the psychometrician. Psychometrician, that's a term yeah. I was looking for. Yeah, so you, you have to hire a psychometrician, which is this uh, uber-specific job of uh, creating and pushing out potential questions to people in your sample group and then gathering their info. I mean, it was like... I always thought like accreditation, like, you know, they were analyzing the quality of the information that you were teaching. And then we got that, that, like, that wasn't at all what it was about. So it was, uh, it was pretty interesting to actually send somebody out, come back and give us the debrief and be like, hmm, interesting. But it yeah, sounds good. That is it. it. Exactly. But then the other reality is what makes a, an accreditation worthwhile anyway? It, only the, the only thing that makes, you know, something worthwhile to be accredited is, uh, what you can do with it, right? So it is a job that hires somebody require that accreditation, then, then it holds water. If nobody cares if you're accredited or not, right? They're just hiring people anyway. It makes no sense to do that. Like, so for right now, you don't have to be quote unquote certified by any accredited organization to coach football. Like you just need to show up, right? At any level specifically at the college and the pro level, like your, <laughs> your certification is, do you know somebody and will you, you know, well, can to, you, can you execute to be a, a strength coach in college? Don't you need a, uh, uh yeah, one or two, yeah, but you, you need, you don't need a master's. You need, need a CSCS or an SCCC. Yeah, that's right. But if you want to get a job, the more you can stack on your education, sure. but it's all about, just like Harrison said, who you know and can you it's execute? It's not what you know, it's who you know. But even still, the you, the NCAA said that you need a CSCS to get a strength coach position. Like that, the NCAA said this is the requirement. If the NCAA doesn't say that, who cares if the NSCA is accredited or NASM's accredited? 
because you don't need it. Sure. Right. So unless the NCAA says we're only hiring coaches that are soldiers to sideline certified, and like until then, it doesn't matter. Sure. That's a good right? goal. Well, but I mean, <laughs> right. uh, like um, accreditation aside, I mean, uh, you know, the merit of your program is the success of the individuals. So, I mean, right. it, you know, your access and who you know and, uh, you know, all the different, uh, you know, people that you can call up in the Rolodex or at least people get excited about it. And, and I'm sure you do. You have coaches in, uh, you know, a ton of different sports that you can reach out to and kind of place people. So a lot of times when these guys are going through this, you know, you're educating them based upon the information that you know that they will need to be successful. And then also kind of cover your ass and your reputation a little bit so that you're not just sending them a bunch of donkeys. And like, hey, that's and, exactly right. And so then you send oh, them yeah. over and, and they know that these individuals are pretty switched on because they've gone through all this. They have this military background. They understand how to work in a team and, you know, discipline, show up on time, all these other key factors that, you know, as you know, uh, a lot of people don't adhere to, especially in the NFL and other places like the amount of guys that didn't show up on time blew my fucking mind. And, uh, you know, and then you send these guys and they're pretty switched on and they're like. Harrison's pretty good. This is, this is a good pool of individuals for us to pull from. And to speak to that quickly from the lacrosse side of things, even last night, lots of names dropped that were going to present, and then that spoke last night. But the beauty was those coaches and individuals, the, the professionals, what they're speaking on is writing practice plans, uh, just essentials that a coach would need to begin. It wasn't this oh, this is what we did back in the championship game, X, Y, Z. No, it was, okay, here's the fundamentals. So he's bringing in high-quality coaches that people within the sport would recognize to then teach you the essentials. Sure. Exactly. And so you guys said it perfectly. So what does certification from Soldier's Sidelines get you? All it is is a stamp of approval that you have completed the initial seminar. And the commanding intent of our seminar is to inspire and motivate all the individuals to want to commit to a lifetime of coaching mastery. Open up eyes, get people thinking differently, and want to explore every avenue of education and development within Soldiers of Sidelines, without Soldiers of Sidelines. Go out there and become the best version of you possible, right? So then once you complete this certification, okay, now we have the stamp of approval. Now the service member has the opportunity to get into our membership development program where that has like a series of online courses, private coaching, like one-on-one, -on -one, like, like this, me and you talking, working, helping you facilitate you through uh, a series of like high human skills courses. Um, some of the essential skills that you need to be able to coach football and lacrosse and basketball, like film breakdown right? Just because you're watching film does not mean that you're breaking down film, right? How do you do that? How do you use the technology and get the film into the technology and then data sort it? Then how do you take that information and distill it into something that can be used by the rest of the staff and then the players? Like those are things that most folks don't talk about and you have to like learn on the fly if you're like a GA and then no one ever teaches the GA. It's like you just get yelled at when you're doing it wrong and you got to <laughs> figure it out on the, on the fly. So we came up with like all of these courses to work on the high human skills, the, the technical aspects of coaching, the technical aspects of the sport, the strategy of the sport. And then it's the private coaching also helps. So then the other thing that we deliver as part of the membership development program is our advocacy. So 
here we go. Now, okay, you want to coach at what level and do you really want to do that? Because the power of a coach, you have the most impact at the youth and the high school levels, like by far. That's sure. Of all the levels I've coached at, my time at Gonzaga College High School was my favorite. It's not even close. Better than the NFL, better than all college. That was the most fun. Those players are still dear to me. I'm watching them get married and become coaches themselves. It's just, it's awesome. So folks will say like, oh, I want to coach college football, let's say. And I have a lot of experience with that, like speaking to people who say they want to coach college football. And it's like, really? Do you, you know, because not everybody is Steve Sarkeesian. Like there's very few of those guys, right? They get to work under Nick Saban for a long time, make well, hundreds of thousands very, of dollars. There's very few people that are given as many opportunities as, as he is. <laughs> uh, well, just even statistically. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, to- totally. Uh, he um, he actually played uh, in Torrance up for Palos Verdes. Uh, so we, he, I think he's a year older than me. And then he played at uh, El Camino, which was a local JC down the street from us. And then went on to BYU and had a lackluster career and, you know, and then went on and, you know, pretty unbelievable, the whole stint at USC and then goes in. I mean, you know, a lot of times those guys kind of play themselves out, but that guy ended up doing real well going in and working for Steve Saban, but you also have the best players. So now he's here at Texas. Let's see what he can do. (laughs) Yeah. And he's a great coach, right? And so, but my point is not everybody is going to, there's there's very few jobs out there that pay that kind of money, right? And it's it's very difficult to get it. The majority of the college football coaching world is you make $28,000 a year and you live in some small town in the Midwest for two years. Then you go to another Division II school, maybe you get a pay bump to $33,000 a year and you're in the office all day, right? And all uh, night. If you, and all night. And if you, you're lucky to see your family, if you have a newborn, you know, Good luck with that, right? And are you prepared to move your family all over the country to chase the next job so that maybe in 25 years, you become Steve Sarkeesian, right? And you look at like the the Nick Saban money and these folks and they deserve it, but it is so, there are so few folks. So our job is to then say, all right, why do you really want to coach? Do you, is it about coaching to help kids or is it about this professional lifestyle you want? And we have some candidates that are on that professional path and we will help you. But with our certification, if we do that, we are going to make calls on our soldier coaches behalf to get them those intro positions. So like our network, like knowing you guys, if I call you up and say, hey, listen, I, I have a, a, a growing coach who is awesome. These are his skill sets, and this is where she is in her developmental process. She would be great at this level in your organization. So now I'm shooting, shooting it straight, and I'm putting my stamp of approval on that. Um, and that goes a long way. So you understand how that reputation uh, is, needs to be protected because we just can't have service members who have not gone through what you went through last night, Tex, and understands our approach and just go up to some school in the middle of nowhere and be like, yeah, I served. That was part of Soldiers of Sidelines. You got to produce that certificate because that coach is going to call me and then I'm going to give him the real lowdown on what your ability is to set our soldier coaches up for success. And um, That's why we have certification. You, you dropped some key words that were a, a big part of 
your speech last night, and I'd love to go through your your pyramid, your coaching pyramid, from the bottom up. So from what was the small up into the the most important, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So the the whole premise of soldiers of sidelines, the way we approach coaching, is represented as an inverted pyramid. So like the base is at the top, right? And the point is at the bottom. And we layer this pyramid in five layers. And the base, the top is the most important. So this is a hierarchy. And what we try to convey to our soldier coaches is when you get into this profession, you gotta, we all gotta work the practice of learning how to inspire. If we can have a team that is 100% inspired always, we're going to be very good. And the example I gave last night, it's like you hear on ESPN commentators talking about some basketball player who's playing inspired basketball because he suffered some tragedy or loss in his life and he's dedicating this game to so-and-so. Then he drops 50 points, right? His career average is 18 and tonight he drops 50. So now you're, if you're a coach, you're asking yourself, how can I get him to play inspired like that all the time? Yeah. Right? We jump 50 points every night. What's the difference? So there, we found that there is a way to, to coach and teach inspiration. And we just got to focus on that first. And then the next level of the pyramid is motivation. So we define motivation as the, the perpetuation of that initial inspiration. Like, what are we doing every single day when that inspirational fire starts to wane to stay the course, like doing the wind sprints, going to the gym, watching film, all the stuff that you don't want to do now so you can uh, achieve something you love in the future. So how do we motivate? So if we're 100% inspired, 100% motivated, we're going to have a very good chance of winning if we don't know anything about the sport. I don't care if you know how to throw, catch, doesn't matter. Then the third part of that pyramid is fitness, right? And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. And clearly you want your, your players to be the most fit, bigger, faster, stronger for longer, but also our coaches, we need to be fit so that we can make the best decisions when things get the most crazy. And that's a function of developing our mind, body, spirit. So if we're inspired or motivated and we're the most fit we can be, we're going to have a good chance of winning. So now the, the, the pyramid is getting smaller and there's two more critical components left for being a successful team. Next part is technique. There's a way to throw, there's a way to catch, there's a way to tackle. And the best part is it's based on Newtonian physics. That's not changing. We live in a three-dimensional world. That's just the facts. There's a way to run, right? You, if you go over to UT and talk to the, strength, to the track coach, they, they are teaching the same ways to sprint. Now there's individual nuances that delve into biomechanics, but you know, there's, there's a, a way to do all of this. And the example I gave last night was airplanes fly on a chalkboard before they ever take off because we understand aerodynamics and all this other stuff. So we can, we can fly a plane before it actually is built. And sports is the same way. So if we could understand the physics and the biomechanics of everything, we can really discover what the best technique is to throw, catch, tackle, block, shoot, whatever it is. 
And then the tip of the pyramid, the, the last part is the strategy. And that's drawing the plays, right? And it's important, but it's just the least important. And what we found is most folks, when they get into coaching, even at the youth level, they want to talk about a playbook. Uh, we're going to draw this play. And that's the fun stuff. Like if, if guys, if the three of us were, you know, hanging out, having a beer, all we want to do is we're going to talk football plays. We start drawing X's and O's. But that's the least important because every coach will you come up with this really well thought out strategy and then you start to teach the technique and sure enough you get midway through the season and you're like ah these guys aren't motivated you know we have poor senior leadership they can't execute the technique or the strategy it's like well whose fault is that <laughs> right mm -hmm. if that's the most difficult we should be spending the most amount of time figuring out how to develop um our inspirational methods, the way we motivate, making sure that we fit. And then the technique and the strategy will take care of itself. Yeah, this, this hit me right at a, a, a perfect time. So I'm currently coaching a middle school and then my uh, critique from the upper echelon within this uh, team that I'm a part of was a knack of my strategy and technique and things like that. But then but my going into this, because I understand it's middle school lacrosse in <laughs> Texas, was teach attitude first because lacrosse was such a gift to me as an athlete and provided me the opportunity since I didn't have the size to play the first passion football any farther than than low level high school to then go and be a collegiate athlete and turn into a sport and a strength and conditioning coach. So I want these kids to fall in love with the sport so it was always attitude first and inspiration and motivation you and know this this yeah. just a that's so interesting like um like uh just the premise as you were talking about it yesterday and i heard you say it right there like how do you like what are the things that you have to do to get a middle school what are they 11 to 12 years old maybe yeah 13 yeah maybe 13 like what things mm -hmm. do you have to put in place for a 13 year old to fall in love with the sport Fun, um, which Fun. which would lead us to the the next piece, Harrison. I don't want to steal this, the thunder on that that surf component, but the this pyramid here, and then surf that I'd love you to present. That 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 was an inspiration Santana Moss moment for me last night. Yeah. Um, so we have this pyramid, right? That's the construct. Now there's a central core that goes right through the center, and it's an acronym that we call surf. And it's something that we have to be focusing on in everything we do. Like literally, even in business, doesn't matter. This applies to everything. And the S stands for safety, right? Um, the E stands for energy. The R stands for retention. And the F stands for fun, right? And if every drill, every practice, everything we do is safety first, and in sports, there's an, an inherent risk in everything. And I think actually the risk of injury is one of the greatest values of sport, regardless of the sport, right? Because there's nothing, uh, there, there's nothing more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shoot, I, I'm at a loss. Um, uh, it, it, brings, it, it brings existence to life at the moment that you realize like you're mortal. 
So like when you get hurt, like that's the ultimate sacrifice. You're doing something for bigger than your symbolic self by sacrificing your physical self. Even if it's just like tweaking, a, risking tweaking a hamstring, running a hundred meters where there's no contact, doesn't matter. Like by rule, sports are dangerous, right? And sports are not good for you physically. Like you get hurt playing sports, right? But the what it does for your resilience is super beneficial, right? That being said, as coaches, we have to be stewards of everybody's health. So we want to be as safe as possible while learning all these life lessons, because if you're injured, you can't play sports and then you don't get to learn all any of this, right? So safety has to be at the forefront of everything that we do. Then we have to come with great energy, always, 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 always. And then we got to make it fun. And even in the NFL, like it's gotta be fun. You've been a part of teams where everything starts to become a drag and coaches just grinding you always and always. And yeah, it's usually on losing teams. Pro. It's usually on losing teams. Uh, like the work is, it's pretty, so the way I looked at it was the work is universal. Everybody's gonna work hard. Everybody's gonna give the same rah-rah speeches. Certain teams have key players and you go out and you win and it makes the work fun when you are, are, are winning and you're in a situation where you're going to get to go to the playoffs and you're in the you know, hunt for the Super Bowl and everybody feels good and people are doing what they're supposed to. And uh, that's what you strive for. I am fortunate that I didn't have to play on like a Cleveland or a Cincinnati or you know, Detroit or some of these teams because I have friends that did and they're like, it's fucking awful. Like the only, you know, you go every day to do your job because you have this passion to do your job and you're getting paid to do it. But they're like, it really just kills the fun. It kills the joy. And you have to look for it in other ways. And uh, I think like, I, I don't know if you saw, but the, they're trying to trade Matthew Stafford. You know, I mean, they basically took a mm -hmm. Hall of Fame quarterback and stuck him in Detroit. And now here at the end of his career, they're trying, you know, they finally realize like we got to let this guy go and actually, you know, try to do something so that he can put a stamp on his career post. I'm like, oh, he's a great quarterback, but he was stuck in Detroit. So I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, regardless of the money, the success, the fame, whatever it is, uh, winning is what's fun. And being in an organization that is winning and heading in the right direction and being a part of that is uh, by far the you know, most addictive thing. So it, it's, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you teach that? Like, how do you, ex I mean, it's <laughs> like, I guess you could say there's like preparation, but everybody prepares. Everybody's getting paid. Like all the NFL teams have the same access to the same free agents, have the same access to the draft. They all have a salary cap. They all have everything. So to look at the teams that consistently win and do well compared to the ones that don't, you almost have to look and be like, what are those teams doing that these guys aren't? Well, I'll tell you, and part of it is there, there's a lot that goes involved, but fun, we know what makes something fun. So on our board is a, a colleague that I worked with at GW named Dr. Amanda Visick, who has this incredible nationally recognized publication on fun. She created these things called fun maps and she figured out and she was able to quantify what athletes, kids, what, what makes something fun, really? And winning was not part of it. Can you, what, do you think, what do you think the number one factor for making something fun was? Cake and ice cream? <laughs> uh, rewards. Uh, nope. Team bros. Uh, balloons. Friends. Friends and balloons. Well, friends <laughs> and the camaraderie was, was uh, number two, but it, it wasn't number one. 
Uh, so there's a um, there's a place called Roly Polies uh, here in Austin, uh, like right up the street from our house, that uh, has a, like a ton of kids' birthday parties. So I've been to like a yeah. hundred birthday parties there. We've had our kids there. Like whenever somebody's like, "Hey, we're going to Roly Polies," I'm like, "Yes." They run it like an absolute factory. They get in, the kids like have this like huge parkour foam pits, and they get to do gymnastics and you know uh, what are they um, zip lines, and then they get all the kids in another room. They feed them cake, pizza, whatever it is, and then you're in and out like. In an hour, and I asked the dude, I'm like, what's the secret to a good birthday party? He's like, cake, ice cream, balloons, and a lot of laughter. And uh, I, you know what? He, he's not wrong. Everyone I've been to, they always have good cake. They, go, they have ice cream. Like, the kids have fun. You hear kids laughing, and, you know, everybody gets a balloon. So I always think with, like, NFL teams, could it be that simple? Cake and ice cream, balloons, and a hell of a lot of, and a lot of laughter. But as you know, NFL coaches don't really laugh that much. Well, and interesting you say that because uh, Greg Williams and I talk about it in this in our book, and he's a huge proponent of laughter. And you wouldn't know that watching Hard Knocks, but um, there's a whole side of that guy that is just misunderstood, and, and he he is intentional and purposeful, and has this all worked out. And uh, in working with him, laughter is, is actually a really big part of of his strategy. But anyway. How, That's a comp- why is he still so not mis- number one? Why is he so misunderstood? I mean, I, I, I played against him in different places. Uh, you know, he went down there and he was involved in that. Uh, what was it? The bounty gate deal down in New Orleans, which yeah. kind of seemed like a big witch hunt. I mean, every NFL defensive meeting that I ever sat into the night before the games, players always threw money in a pot for big hits, you know, first sack, you know, tackle for yeah. loss. I mean, like, like when that thing came out and they were like, oh, people were throwing in money. I was like, ah, I threw in a thousand bucks for, uh, you know, for an NFC championship game for a pot for the first uh, um, for the first sack. I mean, players have consistently always put pots of money together for people to make big plays. It's just yeah, kind of they, a fun thing. And they do it in high school, right? Like it was like, yeah. oh, we're all going to go to like Benihana as a team if we, you know, get like six sacks this week, you know, and then the whole team comes together and it's just fun, right? So was anyway. It, was, it, uh, was it some uh, somebody that got – I mean, what, what's so interesting in the NFL is there's a lot of things like that probably went on that uh, I'm always amazed by how quick people are to, you know, want to point out and virtue signal and be like, oh, this was so wrong. I'm like uh, – that when I saw the whole Bounty Gate thing and they pinned it on Greg's ass – uh, I was like, man, that's, uh, uh, you know, and people were talking about how horrible it is. And the worst part was there were announcers and, and NFL, ex-NFL players chastising him on TV. And I was like, you fucking motherfuckers. You guys have those <laughs> same meetings I do. Now, all of a sudden, you're sitting on the other side. Now you want to, you know, fucking, uh, you know, pretend like you did. Yeah. It's just, it's bullshit. It, it is. And, and you know, not not to get into it, you know, it, it is what it is. But the, the what got what got him in trouble and which is unfair in my opinion, this is just my opinion is it's hyperbole. That's like one of the most hyperbolic people I know. And you, if you don't know, just watch hard knocks, right? Like he's got super colorful language and he does it like as a show, but what folks don't understand it's premeditated. Like he's doing this on purpose at a certain time to create a visceral reaction. And it's like, if you're on a basketball team in middle school, you see like the middle kids, middle school kids go out, they take the court and they're like, yeah, we're going to go out here and we're going to kill these guys. Do they mean that they are actually going to commit murder on a middle school gym floor? No, 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 no. We're hoping to get some layups and potentially win this game. 
but we use the word kill, meaning like it's a hyperbolic statement, right? And people are getting amped up. So when we start to say certain things taken out of context, it's hyperbole to elicit a specific reaction. And football, like it or not, I mean, especially in the 2000s, I mean, it's a violent game. We have to try to motivate players to put their bodies in harm's way for something bigger than themselves, for the team to try to score a touchdown, win a game. And sometimes that language gets colorful to get people riled up to be out and go and do those things. To hold a coach accountable for what those words mean literally is completely ridiculous. <laughs> I, uh, um, when I first got drafted, and I've, I've told this on our podcast before, or on this podcast, uh, when I got uh, drafted to the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, Tom Modrak was our GM at the time, and he came over, and I remember uh, you know, we're in training camp, you know, it's hot, we're all out there stretching, and he comes over and squats down, and he said, hey, I want you to remember something. Uh, remember, this is a violent game played by violent individuals who get paid a lot of money to do violence on behalf of rich old men. So just as long as you remember that, you'll fucking stay in, in your lane and know exactly what to do. And then he said, uh, of any player in the draft, uh, you were my pick. So when you do well, I do well. Just know we're, uh, we're a team in this one. And I was like, huh. And then he got fired two years later, and I was like, oh, shit. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's true. It's a violent game played by violent individuals. And uh, it's, it's interesting when you take situations like that and these coaches and, you know, you have this kind of community, and then they want to kind of drop in and then all of a sudden analyze this moment in time without seeing the entire picture or even really even understanding the culture. Yeah, exactly. So we, a lot of times – uh, there's a lot of pundits that want to be play Monday morning quarterback. And actually I talk about this at length on my podcast with um, uh, retired Colonel uh, Kyle Lamb, uh, former Delta force who was on the streets of Mogadishu in the Black Hawk down incident. And he's guys, one of the most well-read sweet, intelligent commandos I've ever met in my life. And he's got this awesome book called Leadership in the Shadows. And our whole podcast episode that just got released is about killing things. And he leads hunts, killing people, killing animals, how we talk about death. And if you look at what's happening on TV right now, everybody wants to make comments on, you know, little bits of information that we don't really understand the entire context. And I think as humans, like how do we reconcile one death and then two killing, whether you're going to go eat chicken wings and that chicken had to sacrifice its life. You go hunt deer. Are you in war? What, how are we handling this? That's a phenomenal episode. I really encourage anybody to check out our, our podcast as well. It's, we talk about some pretty deep stuff like that. Um, it's called Harrison Bernstein's Everyday Coach. But anyway, this I knew we'd be going into tangents. I want to bring this all back to where kind of where we started. What was number yes, one? Tex. Number one. That's where I'm going to. Fun. Trying hard. Ah. In the book, it's trying hard. Now think about this. What game is fun when you can win every single time, no matter what? John, if you were to play, you know, tackle football against a bunch of five-year-olds right now, would that be fun? No, it's like playing checkers or, you know, or playing chess with people that don't know how to play. I mean, it's... Correct. 
Yeah, it, it, I mean, uh, what I think causes fun is competition, where you where you have to work hard to be able to do something like where you know yeah. evenly matched skilled. You get in there and you mix it up. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I I firmly believe that there has to be a challenge involved. Yep. Well, and that's what she proved. Like it, it, like all the buckets. That was like the that is the number one thing that makes something fun. And at the same time, you know, it can't be too difficult, right? So like you can't get into you know if you ever get into one of those Sudoku puzzles and they give you like two numbers and you have forty six blanks to fill in, like like that's not fun. It's a little bit beyond my scope. I'm not that smart right now. So uh, it so now it, we're we're talking about goal setting. So how can we make every drill, every practice, everything? just hard enough where there's enough competition where it's not so much cutthroat, but everybody can try to expand their level of their ability in every single moment. And that is really what becomes fun. Now, that's not to say that that's the only component of fun. That was just what was number one, because then there's camaraderie. There's the, the positive things that the way coaches interact with, with kids, that's a big component. And winning certainly is, is a big part of it. Right. But what happens when teams start to lose is sometimes coaches change the way that they're setting up the day. So the day doesn't become fun anymore and it becomes drudgery, which begets more losing, you know, and I've actually been on losing organizations where it's still been fun. And quite frankly, I've watched Greg Williams do it and he's, he's really good at it. Where's he coaching now? Or is he out? Oh, well, oh, he's, he's out. Note. He, yeah. the Jets were beating Oakland Raiders and he was the defensive coordinator. And then Oakland had some miraculous pass comeback, Derek Carr. And then he was the, oh, the sacrificial, was sacrificial lamb, lamb. Yeah. that okay. week. That's right. That's right. But then two weeks later, it was the head coach. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like when they fired the strength coach. Like, that's my favorite is like, oh, this offseason, yeah. Because uh, the strength coach really is the one who, you know, oversees and gets everybody. No, dude. Like, the, the firing the strength coach is always a sacrificial win. Yeah, we had four hamstrings injuries. So the strength coach made every – they're not strong enough in the hamstrings. So he's got to get fired. Yeah, we got to get rid of him. Yeah, we need better hamstrings. Like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Harrison, here's a question. How do you prepare coaches to then – be an assistant coach or defend their decisions to to that overhead to that person that's pushing them down that's firing them or uh, potentially making them the scape scapegoat for poor performance so uh could you just rephrase that question just so i make sure that i'm hearing it exactly what you um, intend preparing them for social intelligence i envision coming from military where it's a yes sir no sir into a position where you can now defend your decisions or make a stand for your decisions as a coach to a, a head coach or someone above you, because that's a different approach well, than military where it's yes, sir, no, sir. Uh, most head coaches are kind of tyrants in a lot of way. Well, not all. Uh, there's a good chance. Those guys are pretty, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, the ones I've been around are well, kind of ruled by tyrants. Social intelligence versus the yes or no sir culture. Um, I don't think it's a, a versus. I think it's yes and it's both, right? So you have to understand the culture that you're in and then how are you going to best adapt and then choose, do you even want to be a part of that? Like th that's, I think the bigger question, like 
people forget that you have agency in what you choose to be a part of. Like you don't, you don't need to have this NFL job. You can quit and leave if you want. You don't like what's going on, leave, right? But don't stay in, and then bitch about it, right? So understand, you know, it, it's, it's understanding the environment and then, you know, doing what's required of you. And I, I honestly, text can't even really answer that question because there's so many extenuating variables that each each situation is, is completely unique to itself. So I'll tell you what we can do though, is what we do do is we try to develop our, our folks so they have a, a true inner compass of what is most important to them and can they make clear sound decisions according to what they feel is right. And the word right is also probably not the right word. It's more, you know, aligned to their core. I, I can't talk about right and wrongness. I, I don't know that. It's just, you know, give them at least the courage to leave if they find themselves in a, a moral or unethical situation and make the right decisions accordingly. I like the answer. The, <laughs> I'm just trying to, to, to process, but... What do, what do you mean, like a moral compass? Well, no, I, su I, I suppose, yeah. The, um, you don't have the, the agency, I, I like that word, that you don't, you don't have to be a part. And then in the, in the coaching world and realm, getting a job because it's such a flooded market and I'm speaking guys from the strength coach. I don't know the, 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 the sport coach scenario, but as a strength coach, it's everybody feels lucky to even get an interview, which then potentially leads to a job. And then you're basically taking low pay that you know, you're not worth, but it's better than zero. And you're willing to shovel shit for 13 hours a day at less than minimum wage because there's so little job opportunities in a flooded market. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of strength coaches or a lot of potential strength coaches. And then what's interesting too, is one of new, like a uh, Steve Sarkeesian comes to, you know, Texas, they're pretty good strength coach gets canned and then he brings in his guy and then they got to, you know, empty the weight room and get a whole bunch of new sore neck stuff. Well, and that's what I would ask you, Tex. This is exactly how I would handle that. Why do you want that job? Well, the old me probably you you're chasing the you're chasing the game day, the dream and wanting to level up to the ability that you could never make it as an athlete until you realize it is the it's the high school level. It's the lower levels. It's creating the opportunities for the kids versus being on the sideline. You're providing opportunities for kids to level up versus just you know, being on the NFL sidelines or because, I mean, a lot of coaches entering their career, like you mentioned earlier, they want those 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 polo logo jobs or to be on the sideline during the big game. But then, as you mentioned, there is this this moment of clarity. I feel a lot of coaches have when they realize, OK, it is about the kids and the opportunities, the potential, not necessarily the position. Well, I, man, I, at least the way I looked at it, um, if you play the game, you want to be the best. 
And, you know, whether or not you are the best uh, doesn't mean that you don't go out there and work hard. I mean, uh, you know, you have the opportunity to go out and play like everybody else and the work that you do and whatnot. I think a lot of that goes in for coaching, too. I think coaches want to go out there, especially those individuals that maybe didn't get to play and they want to kind of prove something. But a lot of the guys that I know that were ex-players that have gone on and done very well, like a Ron Rivera, who was, uh, you know, played at Cal and was an incredible linebacker for Chicago. And then he was our linebackers coach in Philly. And, you know, now he's gone on to head coach. I mean, those individuals hold themselves to a higher standard. And I think all that happens is as they ascend the level, now all of a sudden the standard becomes higher and higher and higher. Were you able to do as a player? Great. Were you able to do as an assistant? Now you're the head man. You can do it your way. And now you're competing against all your other friends mm-hmm. and other people you've played on staffs and whatnot. And you're just looking to try to, you know, get into a, I guess you could say, a more exclusive poker game. And, you know, it's just like playing poker or gambling. Those guys want to play against the best just like these coaches want to play against the best and coach against the best. And that's the, how they level up and you know, and obviously the money's probably pretty decent for those guys. Yeah. But my, my question is, is it the best or is it you're associated with what you think is the best and are the standards raising or are the expectations rising? My wife asked me, um, so when I retired in 2009, uh, I had was reached out to by a couple people. Hey, do you want to come in and coach, you know, in the NFL and, you know, be an assistant and, uh, you know, offensive line stuff and come in there and kind of do that progression. And, uh, I decided not to, uh, one, because, uh, I saw that, you know, I mean, I, I still laugh at Sean McDermott was our quality control guy in Philly and his job was to get Andy Reid lunch. Mm-hmm. And now he's a head coach. So it took 20 years to get him there. So you see this position, how long it takes guys to get places and uh, I ended up meeting my wife, and we ended up having two kids. And I remember uh, John Matsko hit me up. And I'm like, I like my wife, and I like my kids too much to be a coach. I'm like, <laughs> I, I was like, dude, like, there's a reason that, you know, most of these guys have divorces, and their wives hate them, and, like, they have these awful, you know, social lives or uh, family lives because the job is, requires so much time. Whether or not it's actually required or not, the illusion of spending time you know, these guys go to the office, sleep there three days a week. And, you know, we were watching film at 3 a.m. I used to hear this shit. And I'm like, dude, the quality of work you're doing at 3 a.m. is awful. Like, you're not coming up with some magical component of the game plan at 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night. This is pure, this is virtue signaling before the Internet. And so <laughs> I think for a lot of those guys, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, this idea of, like, competition and leveling up. And, you know, nobody's going to work harder than me. And, uh, I, I, like when I, I, when I looked at it, I was like, man, like, I don't know if this is a, like, I don't know if this is something that I would want to get into just knowing myself and knowing that I am an extremely competitive person. And if you put me in that competition all the time, I don't know how that whole thing comes out. And so I was like, you know what? I got to figure something else out. And so I'd ask you, John, is that the best? No. I, 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 it's associated with the best, right? Because it's the NFL, it's the high, sure. it pays the most. And, and it's that's the biggest my stage. Thing. It's the biggest stage. Well, that is for sure. I got to play on at the biggest stage. So, like being able to play, and my thing that I used to talk shit to coaches all the time is uh, players play, those who can't coach. Fucking get over it. You know, I'm like, yeah, my definition for coach was a guy who yells at me in the hot sun wearing shorts. So, like, all these jokes that I had, and I was like, man, like uh, Andy Reid over there sweating. And I'm like, dude, you're just standing there. You know, like it just was, uh, I don't know. Not, yeah, so I, I, I poked a lot of fun. And I realized that, you know, you either get to the position where you can't play anymore and then you go coach or you go do find something else. 
and you be a renaissance man and reinvent yourself and try to do new things and be a new person. And, or you go on TV and for the next 40 years, you talk about what you did in you know, the seventies, like Terry Bradshaw. Yeah. Well, and I think the totality of the art of coaching, the, the practice of coaching can make you a renaissance man. There's so much that goes into it. So you're not just the guy that is out there sweating, yelling at the, the, the players. Like there's so much that goes into it and you can dive deep and learn how to do that. And I also contend you can have it all. You, you can dive deep into the practice of coaching and studying without burning the midnight oil always. And part of it is asking yourself, really, do you love coaching or do you love being on the biggest stage in the world? Those are two totally different things. Because you can, you can be in the NFL and not be a coach. You can be the best coach in the world and then not be in professional sports, right? And this is, if we start to open up our minds like this, that becomes very powerful in the control we can have of our own lives and the impact that we can have on others. So, you know, when, when I look at coaching and Texas, we talked about it last night. What we learned is, Man, the reason we coach is because we help others achieve things in their life that they never imagined were possible, right? That's coaching. That is irrespective of the stage. But be honest with yourself. It's okay to say, my goal is I want to stand on the sidelines in the biggest stage in the world. Great. We have a totally different strategy to help you achieve that. So what do most people need? Or, uh, you know, when most people come in, what are they looking for? Renewed purpose? I mean, do they come to you and say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to coach in the Super Bowl in the NFL? Or do people come to you and say, hey, I want to influence people at a young age and I want to do something that is, uh, you know, I can give as much gives back to me and I want to feel fulfilled and enriched and I want to change people's lives and I want to be the person that, you know, they look back 20 years in the future and, you know, and look back in the past and say, this individual changed and altered the trajectory of my life. Uh, I think it's random, like we get all sorts of cases, right? And, and what we try to do is help them find the answer to that question. Like we are facilitating their own introspection to answer that. Because um, a lot of times we don't know. We know that, oh, I love football and I like coaching, like being on the sidelines, but like, why am I really doing this? And I think most people just, we, we kind of like go through life not really asking these deeper questions like what do I like doing day to day really and it just it requires a lot of thought and if we can help facilitate those thought experiments we can hope hopefully uh, achieve different levels of happiness and satisfaction in their lives and that's ultimately what our goal is because if we can do that they now are in control of their lives so they're, they're better coaches of themselves, which means they can better coach everybody else. It's hard to coach somebody else if, if we're not committed to improving ourselves also. And you mentioned it earlier the, and from the talk last night, but that, um, I don't know the name of the graph, but it was the mind-body... The Venn diagram? No, it's not a Venn diagram that that Harrison had, but mind, body, spirit. And then in the middle was that serenity, composure, and flow. 
-hmm. Can you explain the the breakdown of each? Was it three circles all interacting? Yeah. No. Well, with I guess technically four with that that middle. Um, I got it drawn right here, John. Hey, let's not make it smarter than it is. That's word (laughs) art from PowerPoint, and you just you just put a text box in the middle, and you can make it whatever you want. (laughs) Um, That's what that is. But Uh, from that conversation with Santana Moss and that light bulb moment to then to now, why what made you boil and simplify it to these three terms that led to a great person that can then coach? Well. I guess, yeah, it's that introspective moment, right? And how, how do I know I'm becoming the best coach? Like, when, when am I most effective, right? And we can be most effective when we're the most proactive. Like, when we're in total control of this moment. And you guys are both tremendous athletes and played at a super high level. So you've experienced states of flow, like playing in the zone. And, and we can be that in our lives and as coaches. And if we can create like this perfect balanced synergy of mind, body, and spirit, we can feel serenity. And if we just have like this deep serenity of who we are, like I was talking about trying to get people to make decisions based on their, their true core, if we could figure out what that is, we, we can have better composure and we can recognize more flow-like states where we can make great decisions, like when they just come to us. Like, oh, no, this is exactly what I'm supposed to say in this moment. And then you say it and then exactly what you intended to happen then actually happens. And it's like super easy. It's so easy that it's almost not even acknowledged. Like it just unfolds. So how do we get into more of those moments? And part of it is being physically fit and making sure that we can have clear thoughts, uh, we can examine our thoughts, and then we could also have a, a pure spirit and do this through like serving something bigger than ourselves. And you can do that through religion or faith or whatever it is for you. Um, but the convergence of those three things can help us get into better flow states. When you get into flow state, and this is, we had uh, Stephen Cobbler on the podcast who's you know, written extensively about this idea of the flow state and like reaching that, uh, you know, you as a coach and, um, you know, all the things that you've done, have you seen anything that was kind of universal to people that can get in there? I mean, obviously you're talking about Santana Moss and as you were talking about, as I was training him, I'm, do I need to make this guy better? No, I mean, if anything, I probably just need to train him to be more durable so he can handle the 17 weeks of the NFL and the preseason and whatnot. So as you're going out there and you're running him and working him, the idea of like, well, I'm not necessarily trying to improve upon him, but I'm trying to just increase his base level of conditioning. His GPP comes up so that he can handle more. Um, were there certain aspects that you saw of athletes that you worked with that were able to slip into it faster than others? I mean, I know for me personally, um, I never once heard the crowd during an NFL game and everything seemed to happen in slow motion and I could literally run to the line and as I got into my stance, I would set up and I would look and everybody would move in slow motion and everything was deathly silent. And it wasn't until years later when I was having conversations with people that this is what they do, being like, that was exactly it. And I was like, yeah, it was a place that you got to where you were able to do things that you couldn't normally 
and everything just kind of slowed down and kind of happened in this kind of you know magical place. And if anything, uh, that was what I missed most about retiring from the NFL. I could care less about the roar of the crowd and people knew who I was and any of that other stuff. But that ability to have that calmness and to be able to execute and move in that space was like that was the most addictive part. Have you seen something like that universal to people or more importantly of the athletes that you worked with? Yeah. And I think it's pretty well documented too. And ultimately like when that's happening is like your higher cortical brain centers are really quiet and your deeper brain uh, areas are a little bit more active. So like your, your, your mammalian brain, like your, your implicit reaction is, is, is firing um, you're at this optimal arousal level, right? So you're able to feel but it's not too high and it's not too low. But more importantly, all analysis is shut off. Like you, your, your inner monologue is silent, right? Time stops because time doesn't, it doesn't exist. The concept of time doesn't exist, right? And, and time is something that we think about with our higher cortical levels. Like you check your watch. What time is it is an is a inner monologue thing that happens that makes you analyze time. So... Yeah, I mean that that's really it. There's there's no analysis. And and part of part of coaching athletes, what I think is is super important to help get that is let is give athletes the agency and the confidence to trust their bodies. Like it's almost like you can try harder by trying less hard. Just your body knows what to do. Our bodies are super sensory organisms and we can train our nervous system to respond through arousal levels in very specific ways. I'm sorry if I'm speaking like kind of vague, but, but there's, there's like a lot of science that like goes into oh. this that I just don't even really want to get into. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's, you know, can you let the athlete trust what their body knows outside of their own analytical cognition? But that only happens with enough preparation on the front side to let them get into the flow state. The one thing that I realized early on, um, a lot of guys couldn't get into it because one, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. The amount of guys that I played with in the NFL that didn't know the playbook. I I played next to a dude, every play, what are we doing? He didn't memorize the playbook. So I, and I I went bitched. I'm like, hey, you're going to get on this dude's ass. He's making more money than me. And he's not learning the fucking plays. And you know what they said? Learn his and just tell him what to do. So like, (laughs) that was fine. And I'm like, okay, now that we've established what the baseline of your expectation is, now we'll go do it. Um, so, like, I saw this happen to young guys all the time where they didn't really know what they were doing. So when you don't know what you, you're doing, you're kind of apprehensive. So my whole thing, I used to tell young guys this, if you don't know what you're doing, just fuck up at 100 miles an hour. Just go light somebody up. Then the what coach is going to look and be like, well, you didn't hit the right guy, but the guy that you hit, you clobbered. So, like, let's get you on the right players, uh, on, on the right person. Um, it, but the only way, I mean, for me, I remember uh, when I went in, they gave us the playbook, and I went home and just memorized it. And they came back the first day and like we're asking questions and, you know, guys were fucking up. I'm like, you guys didn't go read the playbook. No, most people just didn't. And I'm like, man, like this isn't all the answers are in this book, this big fucking thing that we have to carry around that we get charged $10,000 if we lose. You might as well crack it and understand it. But I found that guys that didn't know what they were doing or felt apprehensive or didn't have confidence and, you know, this, I mean, all the, you know, their, their inner self was, uh, was like the most toxic thing. Cause they were just doubting themselves at all time. I'm like, dude, at some point, just turn it off. You know what to do. You've done enough reps. We've done this 10,000 times. If you, you know, buy into the whole, you know, uh, 10,000 hours theory, 
but that idea of muscle memory and, you know, dude, this is the same stuff, pad level, all these other key things. And then you just go out and you do these things and you compete at the highest level. And I felt like a lot of guys couldn't access that. They couldn't get there because of all the other bullshit that they had going on swimming around. Right. That you're absolutely right. Because by them not preparing, by not preparing, they had to always be thinking about what do I do? I don't know what to do. That is thinking. If you're so prepared, you can bring that information into implicit memory where it just happens. You can't just trust your body to do something if it hasn't been told what to do. There's certain inputs. And that's why just preparation is so important. That's like one, that's one of the pieces, right? And the thing about football specifically is despite what people think, it's just so cerebral, right? There's so much information to ascertain at any given moment. There's so much. So, um, but yeah, it's so simple. That's what I loved about it. I get to one-on-one fist fight this dude for three hours in front of millions of people in this, you know, in these fancy uniforms and, you know, all these plays, everything, all it ever comes down to is me against one dude. And I think that's what I loved on the simplicity aspect. Like you can get into all this complexity plays, you know, we're going to run a zone. We're going to run a man. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. All it comes down to is me battling one individual, every single play. Now it might be different individuals. We might be different techniques and all the other stuff in the bag of tricks. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this physical contest to basically put yourself on the line to try to whip some dude's ass for three hours every Sunday. Yeah, and, it and, and I loved it. I mean, fuck, dude, that was like, this is what's interesting as you retire from the NFL. It's almost like uh, in Fight Club, you remember where he talks about like after Fight Club, like the volume just gets turned down. Like Mm -hmm. after doing that and like doing it for a decade, all of a sudden you come out and you're like, man, I don't get to fucking whoop anybody's ass anymore. You've got goosebumps right now. So, yeah, I loved it. I uh, like, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, you know, uh, uh, is there anything else you ever want to do? I'm like, yeah, there's a ton of stuff I want to do. I I love being CEO for Power Athlete. I love what we do. Uh, Will it ever replace the satisfaction of fucking beating some dude's ass on a Sunday in front of millions of people? And it didn't matter if yeah. it was millions or nobody, if it was just my mom in the stand. The fact that I got to beat some dude's ass like that and I got paid money to do it and I, and I got the opportunity to fight and battle the biggest dudes and go train my ass off and see if the training I had was uh, you know, enough of a vehicle to allow me to whoop that dude's ass, that by far was the most addictive thing for me. And uh, I don't know anywhere else in the world that you get to do that other than maybe professional boxing and you know, some of the other fight stuff. So then I asked you, John, why is that fun? (laughs) Why is that fun? Yeah, Uh, why? Why why is it so intoxicating to you? And I know that it's a rhetorical question. Oh yeah, no, it's a one hundred percent totally setting. Yeah, no, I I know it's a rhetorical question as a rhetoric major. Um, (laughs) uh, The uh, it's because um, I I think certain people are and we you know you were talking about on that podcast with killing certain people are are take a i guess take a liking to violence or enjoy the violence and the nature and the competition and the battle and the fight you know like you can't be a professional boxer and not enjoy hitting somebody you know like if you like if you get into professional boxing or fighting and and the sight of blood makes you queasy you're not going to do well same in football like if you don't like the violence and the hits and like you know you don't like love that stuff. It's a very, very difficult. And I used to play, I, I played with guys that didn't love it that way. They didn't like the pain. They didn't like the hits. They did it because somebody told them they were good at, but didn't really enjoy the physical combat nature that like very primal, 
primal piece of it. So what about that is enjoyable, the primal piece? What about that's enjoyable? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I never really thought of like, you know, like why that's enjoyable. It's probably something within, you know, million years of evolution. I mean, like, you know, when you boil things down, I love the simplicity of it. I think when you add too much complexity to something, it becomes, it ruins it. And I think just the simplicity of that was extremely, you know, like that's what I liked. That was the fun part. I mean, I'm with you. I love it too. Like when I left the Redskins, I started boxing competitively, right? Just at 31 years old. I just freaking love it, right? So I, I put some thought into it. it and I think why, why we love all that is it's back to Amanda Visick in, in trying hard, right? The, the battle is set where like you're at the right challenger. You're not fighting someone that you could whoop up super easy because that's not fun. And if you're, play, you're, you're fighting against someone like that, you know, you, you can't fight Evander Holyfield in boxing, like you just, I mean, you can, but it's going to be pretty short lived. So yeah. that's not going to be fun. But what we're doing is when, when our opponent, when we're like pretty equally matched, right. As you were in the NFL, that guy was there too, right. Pretty equally matched. Um, we're sacrificing, we're putting it all on the line and our own mortality in that moment comes into question and back to fight club. He says, what could you possibly know about yourself if you've never been in a fight before? And at that moment, you are staring your own mortality in the face. Like, cause I can get physically injured, like seriously. And I know I'm sacrificing this, but we also recognize that our opponent is too. And there's this, only males probably really understand this, but there is this magical bond that happens between an opponent when you are fighting and you're like, I am trying to whoop your ass. I recognize you are trying to whoop my ass we are doing this together and we are both facing our own mortality because the other one exists. And I, I, I think this is beautiful. And like, I'm addicted to that. It is, it, it, it's pure. It's the ultimate challenge. Can, can I persevere? And I'm putting my health and mortality on the line right now. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's really nothing like it. And, um, uh, you know, like I think whatever, what, um, you know, whatever opportunities you get to go do in this world, I always look back and, uh, people, you know, and like, you know, especially with the CTE and a lot of the stuff that's going on today, uh, you know, you always get people like, Oh, would you do it? If you knew, would you let your kids play? And I tell them 100%, I would go back and I would do it all over again. I would do it way better this time because I wouldn't fucking, I would have uh, access to better information. Um, would you let your son 100%? I would never rob him of the experience to go out and to do that and to compete at the highest level. And whether you play high school, college, you get the chance to go to the NFL and be the best, whatever it is that like camaraderie to be able to work with individuals. I mean, I always dude, You've heard me say for years, man, the, the best things I ever learned in this world were playing football and for my brothers and my mom and dad. Other than that, like, uh, you know, I went to Berkeley. I did all these things, but like what I learned at home and what I learned on the football field, not from the coaches, but what I learned in like the moments of like desperation and wins and losses and competition and all these other things, you know, playing through injury, persevering, whatever that you learn in the heat of the battle. Um, and I always dislike when people relate football to war that like, I always hated those analogies about war in the trenches mm-hmm. and everything. But, um, 
Like that's where you learn who you are and more importantly, like what hard work is and perseverance. And, you know, when it's 106 degrees out and you're wearing a bunch of gear and you're out there hitting for two hours and it's fucking awful. And you're seeing the, you know, the guys that are holding the markers on the sideline falling over in heat exhaustion. Like that's the shit that gets me riled up. And that, and those yeah. are the things I lived for. Yeah, because that goal is set just perfectly. Like, you know, you, you want to meet that challenge. And like you have some really high uh, adversities that you're going against, but you want to see, can you meet the challenge? And that's why it's super fun for you. Can we create that in everything that we do for our employees, our players, uh, you know, our, our family, like make it fun, make it challenging, but it's got to be at the right level because, you know, it's not fun. If you are a very good high school player, as much as you think you want to play in the NFL, in the first one second, you will hate it because you have zero chance. Zero. Like back, okay, this is another good, back to Santana Moss. He and I, we, we used to run. I was, I was pretty fast. That guy was on a different level. And he let me know one time when we were running. And he just, it, it was super innocuous. We we're running next to each other. And he looked at me and just did, did what he does. And he pulled away, and in that one instance, I knew, I was like, I have zero, zero chance of catching this person. Like, it's gone. And that's not fun anymore. The race, the race is over. There's no reason for me to ever race you ever again. Like, zero. Demolish it. Yeah, you know what? I, I would continue to go out there and race him. Just because I'm a glutton for punishment, I'll be like, let's try that one again. Eventually, this motherfucker's going to get tired and I might get a step on him. <laughs> well, and I used to do it, but you would say, like, you, it, it, it wouldn't be fun. You would do it, but it, it, it's not. Like, you just, you have zero chance. And, you know, you'd like to think, oh, I'm a hard worker. I can, I can work hard if I, if I try You can't will yourself into that shit. You can't. It's just, it's so far beyond, right? So if you, if you were, uh, you know, an all-conference high school linebacker, and then you were to step on the field that you played on at the NFL level, you, it would take you less than a half a second to realize, no, this is not, this is not for you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, uh, it was kind of an interesting observation. Um, when I went in, I came in and started as a rookie. And so, you know, and then went on and started for the rest of my NFL career. And it was pretty interesting when I was in my fourth or fifth year, uh, I remember young guys would come in. And at that point, I could tell you within the first two or three plays or just seeing them in practice or if whether or not they were going to be a player and be around for a minute or not. Like I would watch a dude come out and I'd watch him. I'd be like, this dude ain't going to last. This guy isn't going to be here, you know, and they would cut guys. I mean, shit. I watched a dude bench 585 for a triple walk out to practice and get cut during practice. They brought in some big, strong dude, you know, and they're killing the weight room. We're like, Oh God, we go out there. The dude was so bad. He stood straight up. And uh, we were just fucking teeing off and like tea kettling him. And they cut him mid practice. They were like, you're going to get hurt out here. We got to get you out of here. Yeah. And uh, like, it was uh, like, you know, and, and as you know, you're part of an NFL, like there's some crazy shit that happens where you're like, nobody will ever believe this story. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, that's true. I mean, dude, there's like, like I can think of so many things that I'm not going to bring up because it'd probably be inappropriate. But like, there were so many things where I'm like, man, people are like never going to believe this one. And, um, you know, that, that ability to see young guys and players and know who were players and who weren't very quickly, uh, was just, it, it was like red and blue. And, uh, yep. you know, and, and so I'm always amazed 
by, you know, personnel and GMs and, and, you know, guys that go out and scouts and this whole thing, when they're so far off base, like, you know, like I, um, years ago I was teaching a gig for Naval Special Warfare and I was flying home and uh, they stuck me in a middle seat in the exit row. And uh, the kid I was sitting next to was kind of like a, I don't know, a late twenties black kid. Um, and he was sitting there watching cutups. He, you know, he had an iPad and, uh, you know, was looking at cut-ups, and he's looking sideline end zone. And, you know, the only people that have access to sideline end zone are coaches. You know, like no civilian's mm-hmm. going to get that stuff. So he's watching some college stuff, and I kind of was glancing over, and then he starts watching a bunch of NFL stuff. And uh, I kind of was, you know, looking over his shoulder, and he kind of, like, showed it, and then he took off his headphones, and he was like, uh, you know, like we just started kind of rapping a little bit. And I was like, oh, who are you watching? And, you know, you got some end zone sideline. And so we get into talking. He goes, hey, did you play college football? And I was like, I did. So then we start kind of talking a little bit more and, you know, whatever. And then uh, uh, he's like, did you play in the NFL? I'm like, I did. And turned out he was a scout for the Rams. He's like, oh, shit, John Wilburn, I scouted you. And so we were watching a bunch of stuff, and he made a great point. He said, hey, um, watch this kid. What do you think of this guy? Uh, we drafted him, like, with one of, you know, the, our, our first-round draft pick, and we thought this kid was all-world. We put our coaches out there. Scouts went out. He was a can't-miss. He can't play dead. He can't play left tackle. He can't play guard. Do you think he could have he, – he fooled us? And uh, I said, 100%. I saw dudes that could fool you in the weight room with all the drills could do. They were masters of this. But when you get out there and you put them against people who are better than them, all of a sudden, you, you know, they get pushed out on the rails and you see how, how the seams get exposed. And I was like, this guy was able to fool you. And he's like, uh, you know, and it was just kind of an interesting observation on the idea of developing athleticism. But also what it made me realize is that a lot of times the players know before the scouts and the coaches because a lot of those guys aren't out there actually playing. They're in there watching film. They're not seeing the demeanor. They're not out there actually seeing these guys and seeing them in the fight. And they're sure as hell not talking to the players. And the smart scouts used to come over and be like, what do you think of that kid? I'd be like, oh, he's pretty good. He, he's got a chance. What about that guy? No, no dice. And so, I mean, they, they were pretty smart in talking to the players that were a little bit older that had played and knew what they were talking about. So I'm always amazed when these guys spend all this money and they bring these guys in and they can't play dead. And I'm like, shit, where's the QC on that? How did they miss this one up? Well, yeah, it's been happening. Uh, man, there's so much to go into. So we have a, a gentleman that works with us. He has a company called Agdiago that has uh, leveraged some of the science from Gallup polls and uh, that, that, that strength finders kind of stuff. But they, they figured out this, um, this algorithm in discussing the key traits for elite football players um, for recruiting at the collegiate and then scouting into the NFL level. And it has, it's, it, it can literally quantify everything that you're discussing. So you would take a survey, right? And then the survey gives you a score in a certain number of categories like mastery, team orientation, perseverance, competitiveness, uh, and something else. I just, I forget off the top of my head. Right. So you, you get, you, you wind up getting a score and like, you can't cheat this algorithm. Like it's, it's not possible the way that they do it, but then it's like, it's not like the score tells it all. The, the, the folks at Agdiago are so good at interpreting the score. Right. And so now we're taking this, this information of how, of how this person assesses their own behavior in certain social dynamic situations. And then seeing how those numbers relate to each other and then compare that against to the environment in which they grew up in. And you could start to see like how this person 
can thrive as an athlete? And can they thrive behaviorally, you know, at this division one or NFL level? It's absolutely fascinating. And the thing is, it's just like when, when analyzing data, it's not just the, the data, it's the narrative we attach to the data and how the data relates to other pieces of information. It's, it's the relationship. And then if you can weave that into a correct story, you can really guess right on, on a player. And it, a lot of it is like, what are you asking that person to do? Well, that person might not be so great if you ask him to do this, but if you ask him to do that, he could be really, really good. Do you have a place for that in your current team or scheme? And being a sports performance coach, like the, the physical fitness stuff is so low on the hierarchy no. of things that are important. I mean, <clears throat> I don't even know why dude. you would even ask me. It's like, dude, you saw him at your benches. Like you saw what he could run. Like dude, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I played with a guy named Hank Fraley, who if you saw him, we used to joke that he looked like he won a contest. That he was driving a beer truck. Uh, Hank, like he, I mean, his nickname was, he's an NFL uh, offensive line coach. He'll probably be a coordinator here pretty soon. And uh, Hank was super sharp dude, played, you know, Robert Morris out of Pittsburgh, uh, came Mm -hmm. in as a, you know, undrafted free agent. We had an injury at center. Are they Patriot League? Morris? Yeah, yeah, I think they are. Uh, uh, Bubba Miller, our center gets hurt. And like we, this, they throw this dude in and, you know, we had a bunch, we, we had a guy, Jim Pine, who came in. And he was the only dude that could consistently get the ball up into the quarterback's hands. And they were like, fuck it. All we need you to do is to snap the ball. Uh, we'll just fucking never put you on an island. We'll slide your way. We'll do whatever. They even said to me, they were like, hey, if, uh, if he's got a wide, you know, and you got a three and there's a shade, I want you to stab him and try to get out. You know, I mean, we did as much as we could. We used to call the center the crutch boy position. But um, Hank's body, he like looked awful. But yet the dude could bend his knees. He could move in space. He could punch, he understood leverage, and he fucking had tenacity. And, like, if you just were, you know, walking individuals, you'd be like, there's no way that guy plays in the NFL. And he had intangibles, and he ended up playing, I bet you, 10 years. And uh, played at a high level, went to Cleveland, did well, and uh, now he's in the NFL. But it's pretty interesting, like, not necessarily the most physically fit guy, not a weight room guy, but could play the game. I mean, I saw dudes that, you know, it was weird. I, I saw guys that barely could bench 300 pounds that went out and absolutely murdered people. I, I told you I saw that dude probably had a 600-pound bench press and couldn't play dead. Um, and then I played with other guys who were extremely strong and played. I mean, Brian Waters, you know, uh, Will Shields and, you know, Willie Rofe and those guys were all really weight room strong and had the ability to use it on the field. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I saw the gamut. And so um, uh, what was most interesting and I think where the origins of Power Athlete came from was I was fascinated by the idea that people were weight room strong and couldn't translate it to the field. Yeah. And that was like this like kernel in my mind. And so everything that we talk about here at Power Athlete, and I was somebody that as I got stronger in the weight room, I was able to translate 100% of everything from the weight room onto the field. And, uh, you know, and then I sat back and I saw what the way that I trained and what I did and how I moved, and more importantly, the, the intangibles I had that allowed me to do this so then that's where a lot of the origins for this came from. We're just out of that observation of like, why yeah. can't this dude play dead? Why is this guy so fucking strong in the weight room, but he can't play? Why is this guy able to do these things? And it's like, 
Can they move their feet? Can they bend their knees? Are they waist benders, knee benders? And I'm sure you've heard that many, many times. But more importantly, like compensatory acceleration, can you continue to accelerate the weight as mechanical advantage increases, so to speed? Can you use that in the weight room and then translate it? And, um, you know, can you play with pad level? And do you understand mechanics? And are you strong in your trunk? Can you rotate? Is there transverse plane? I mean, all of these things went into the training. And then when I went out and worked with some NFL or with some potential NFL guys, I realized how few of these guys had ever heard any of this shit. No. So. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's thin slicing and recognition and reaction, right? It's thin slicing information in real time. Can you do that? Like, what matters? What are you, what are you paying attention to, right? And you also know it. Like, that's the best part about power athlete. It's, you, you know, it's understanding that there is no direct transfer of skill. And all the weight room movements are their own skills unique to themselves and do not transfer to blocking, tackling. Now, greater strength and power does so long as it's employed properly to the skills involved on the field, right? That's the whole thing. Just because you bench press doesn't mean you're good, you're necessarily strong in this plane. It's just you are very good at the bench press. That is only very good if you're competing in powerlifting for the bench press. Well, uh, for for me, um, so I, I come from a boxing background, and the big uh, always the big scouting report on me was like fast hands, moves well in space, and it was like uh, that's all the shit I learned in boxing. How to get, how to cut a guy yeah. off in the ring, how to play a guy two thirds inside out, how you know first meaningful touch, how to close mm-hmm. distance. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, how to be strategic with your hands, how to, you know, go from a relaxed, you know, that um, task specific tension relaxed and be able to snap it. I mean, all the shit I learned boxing, it just felt like an easier application when I went out and actually used it on the football field. Exactly. And like in boxing, and you probably recognize this on the football field, maybe not so much in football field, but in boxing. The, the guy that goes to step in the ring that's all rocked up with all the muscles. That's not the guy you worry that's, about. <laughs> that's the guy you want to fight. Yeah, that's it, not the guy the, you worry about. <laughs> correct. Because when you knock him out, it's going to look really good. Dude. Because uh, like, you knock that guy out, you're like, yeah, I, dude, I no uh, chance. I remember walking out and like seeing like Like it was always the weird like dude with like the big ass that was kind of like, you know, maybe bow legged or knock kneed, like weird feet that had kind of longish arms, big ass, you know, kind of like these kind of awkward bodies where you'd walk up and be like, Oh fuck, this is going to be a yeah. fucking hell of a day. Uh, yeah. and then, then you see these other dudes that were just like these big fucking strong dudes. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. I'm just going to tee off and fucking smash this dude. He's just a two gapper, yeah. you know? And, uh, but yeah, it was always that like weird, awkward dude where you're like, this is going to be a weird one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then you have, the, then there's the freaks, right? Like the Aaron Donald, who is all of that, and you know, yeah, and yoked. You're yoked. Yeah, you're yeah. you're just in trouble. Just if he's in front of you. It's, you know, I it's gonna be a battle. Uh, uh, I I wish there was an opportunity to like take all the best players and like you know like at their prime. I mean, you know, I, I see these guys and I'm like, man, I would have I I would have loved to have played against JJ Watt. That's like I think the reason I make funny. I would have loved to have played against him. I think that guy's like a high motor dude, plays with good pad level, has really good technique, doesn't give up. I would have loved great him. TV host. Uh, yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> like he would have been a fun guy to play against. Um, you know, I I got a chance to play against you know Strahan and uh, you know Warren Sapp. I mean, I, I got to like all those players from my era. Uh, I got to play against them all. It was funny. People were like, oh, who, who is the best? I'm like the next one. 
every fucking yeah. week I had some superstar, the best player, and you know I played in you know the the leagues with these guys or uh, in the divisions with these guys. So it's it's cool to see these players and be like, fuck, man. I um just like I was sad I never got to play against Howie Long. Uh, he was you know I remember as a young guy going into like a production meeting with Howie and and I was sitting there and being like, man, I'm real excited to be in here. He goes, why? I'm like. Fuck, dude! I I grew up imagining getting a chance to play against you, and you retired. You fucking coward! And I talked <laughs> shit to him, and he was like, he started laughing. He's like, "Fuck you! I want to fucking beat your ass." I'm like, "I know. Let's fucking go." Like the only way we know is if we tee it up, and uh, so that's uh, like, but but I I think that's the that's the cool part about it. And having done that job, I you know, win, lose, or draw. The only way you know how good you are is when you line up against the best in the world to do it. See, yeah, you know, man, I would love to have you do that Agdiago survey uh, and see how you score because I'm Send already starting to see you. Like, yeah, man, you you are. Uh, I could see how you played at a super high level uh, and, uh, and was successful. I like, love like, it. Like, I mean, you just it, it's it's oozing out of you. Um, yeah, maybe. So those guys, those those Agdiago guys, are down at the Senior Bowl right now. Oh, are they? Uh, doing assessments yeah i mean this thing is like this is legit well uh so so they're doing the senior bowl but they canceled the combine yeah that makes absolutely no fucking sense to me but it kind of does though a little bit well think about this uh like the combine is kind of worthless it's yeah it's it's, (laughs) all all it is and i've said it for years all the combine is is just a check like did you show up and prepare for what you th- knew that we were going to test you on? And if you did, then check, you're the guy we think you are. But what they're searching for is the guy who doesn't prepare and doesn't come in and do well. And they're like, ooh, he knew what the test was and he didn't study for it. What's up with him? I mean, that's all the combine is. Yeah, yeah it, absolutely. And the opportunity to interview. So like from, from a coaching's perspective, like those interviews that you set up in between the the events and everything, that's a great opportunity for NFL coaches to get face-to-face time with these players and have like legitimate discussions. And I think what they're thinking now, since the most of the coaches value that the most, we could do it over Zoom. So, you know, unfortunately for the fans, like it's really cool for the fans, you know, to to start to see these numbers. It's a wonderful fan experience. Um, But I, I think for the, for the organizations, for the sports teams, it's like, we already have this data. Yeah, we got five years of, uh, of of films on these kids too. So two years ago, I went out, uh, Tex and I went out to Dave Spitz's and uh, out of Cal Strength and worked with their NFL, uh, you know, the young guys potentially going out there. And it was pretty fun to like prep them for that stuff and to talk to them and be like, here's all the mistakes that I made. Here's what you need to tell these fucking dipshit football coaches and scouts. And I tried to give them like the exact background. I'm like, hey, so like I, I fucked up when I, when I did mine because uh, – I, you know, I went to Berkeley, I uh, got a degree in rhetoric and was working on my master's in education. And so I went to that. When did you graduate Berkeley? Uh, 98. So I graduated in 97, got my master's in, or worked on my master's in 98, and then went to the NFL in 99. So you didn't have any overlap with Andre Carter, did oh, you? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, I know, Andre. I, I played with him at Cal. Oh, you did play at Cal. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know, like, when you guys graduated, I was trying to, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, he's one of my favorite people. Just, like, yeah, we got no, to coach uh, together. I got to coach yeah, him, and, like, he's just uh, freaking awesome. Yeah, no, he's a fucking great dude. Uh, so, yeah, so, uh, um, so when I went into these meetings, you know, these guys kept asking me. They were like, hey, uh, do, you, do you have any backup plans if this doesn't work out? And I was like, yeah, actually, um, uh, I'm planning to go to law school. Uh, applied for a scholarship to go to Bolt Hall, and if this doesn't work out, I'll go to law school. And it was funny. I, I was so... Over, 
I don't know, man. Like, I, I kind of went in with this chip on my shoulder to try to prove that I wasn't a fucking moron. You know, I, I ended up scoring 40, 40 something on a, you know, 44, 45 on the Wonderlick out of 50. And uh, I had this idea that, like, you know, I was going to dispel this dumb jock. And I realized that's not what they fucking want. They want a dude who comes in there and is like, I got nothing else. There is no backup plan. The NFL yeah. is all I got. Um, you know, I went to school. That was fine. But you know what? This is my focus. This is who I am. Because I kept having these coaches being like, why the fuck you want to play in the NFL? You should go do this. Like, you don't need this. And as I was going through with these young guys, I was like, hey, when you get into these interviews, be very, very clear that there is no fucking backup plan, that this is all you got. This is all you want to do. And this is your focus that you went to school. You got a degree. That's fine. But it was just a fucking way station to get you where you want. And that all you want to do is talk about football. Do you have any interests? No, this is all I do. And that's the type of shit. And it was funny because uh, as those kids went in and they went to those interviews, Spitz was like, man, that was great. All these kids do great on their interview. I'm like, because they weren't over there trying to impress somebody that doesn't need to be impressed. They weren't out there trying to prove to the world how smart they were. At the end of the day, they just want to know that you're going to fucking put your head through a wall and you'll do what you tell them. You'll show up on time uh, and don't get a DUI. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was fun to prep those guys based off of like what I knew as an NFL player and the mistakes that I made. And, um, yeah, I got prepped like shit. Like, my, my agent's like, yeah, you're a smart dude. You should tell them how smart you are. I'm like, oh, fuck. They don't want to know that shit. Yeah. Uh, and and when, you were, when you were going out for the NFL, too, like, the combine was starting to become bigger. And that was actually an opportunity in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. That was an opportunity to use the combine to make more money because, you know, sports science isn't where it is now then like so people didn't know that so people actually put a lot of stock on a 40 like you like, could you could run a 40 time and make like millions of dollars that was even though the mike mamula remember mike mamula yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah like like mike mamula got i mean uh, fucking absolutely destroyed the combine gets drafted and i played with mike he's a great dude had but had no business fucking being a first round draft pack and then putting that on him i mean but just went out there and absolutely exploded the combine and then they had a guy, I think it was a year or two later, uh, I can't even remember his name, he was there. I mean, shit, he was another guy that blew up the combine, they drafted his ass, and he was in and out in two years. Yep, yep, because the combine does not transfer to football. No, no, it, it no, does, no. None of that stuff does, and it, it, so like, it just doesn't matter. Um, and at that time, so many GMs like believed that. Like, oh, well, that guy runs a 4-2. Well, what, the, what they're but, always can, doing, and, and th- th- this is fascinating to me, what they're trying to do, and then, and I, I heard this for years, uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find players that remind them of successes. That was a big thing. Oh, this guy reminds me of this guy. You remind me of this guy. And there was always, like, I fucking heard this, and, like, you know, all the time they'd be like, oh, this guy's like a, like a young you. And, like, I, and, and it was so funny because what they did is they, and this is kind of like, you know, shit, maybe people get mad, but I have a lot of times the personnel guys don't know what the fuck they're doing. So what they're doing is they're and maybe they don't understand the nuance. They don't understand athleticism. They don't understand all the biomechanics. Like when I they can don't look, like when I look at a player and, and these guys here, I'll be like, dude, that guy can move his feet. Look at his foot position. Look at the way he understands leverage. Look how he moves his hips. Look how he can punch and not lose his balance. Look how that guy moves in space. Look at how flexible that guy is to move his hips. You know, when I watch defense alignment, can they move in space? Can they play that little bit of matrix game where they get a guy to bite and then they're able to kind of dip away? I mean, all this shit. And it's funny because the scouts don't know that. And then what they do is when they see somebody, 
And I'm like, well, that guy could do it. He reminds me of this dude, so he should be able to do it. So that was their kind of check. And I heard that all the time. And I'm like, dude, that's just a cop out for you. Don't, you can't fucking evaluate talent. Well, first of all, that's the dumbest fucking thing you could ever say. And it's wrong to do that to a player. Why would you ever compare one player to another player? Right. John Wilbur has got to be the best version of John he could possibly 100%. be. And you are unique to your own self to then tell somebody else, oh, you remind me of so and so is up. He, he's it, set up for failure. He can never be somebody he's not I, by I definition. Well, uh, so when I came in uh, and it was funny, I, I, I came in and started at right tackle and then I got hurt and they brought and then they brought in John Runyon and paid him a ton of money. So then I went and played left guard and it was pretty interesting when I was playing tackle. Uh, we were watching film and I remember it was like, fucking, I'm watching these dudes. And I finally, like after about a day, looked at my offensive line coach. I'm like, do you have any like six foot five white dudes, maybe six foot five, 300 pound dudes. You've been showing me six foot eight, 360 pound, like black monsters. Like these dudes are just like, you know, seven foot two wingspan, you know, Jonathan Ogden's punching a dude into next week. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm a six foot six, six foot five, 300 pound white dude. Where are those videos? And like my coach looked at me and he was like, wow, that's really that's hold on. And he brought me like Jim Lachey. He brought me, uh, um, uh, Jumbo Elliott, um, you know, and we started going, you know, Zimmerman and started going through all of these dudes who were about my size. And I was like, Oh fuck vertical set. Keep your shoulders square. Don't step in the bucket. Big punch. I got that shit all day. Don't get beat inside. And so as they were kind of setting up, I'm like, Hey man, I saw Gary Zimmerman. I've seen uh, a Jumbo Elliott. This is how these dudes are setting this wide five. I'm setting them here. And I did that and I didn't lose. And it was like this fucking revolution to these guys when he's like, wow. And I'm like, so what you're, you guys have been trying to do is you have a technique that you saw work for one person, but you don't have the understanding of like biomechanics and physicality to look and be like, shit, man, that guy's not 360 pounds. So if he, you know, he needs to be in the best position, like Trey Thomas, who I played with, he could get out of position and he was so fucking big and strong and just massive that it didn't really matter. If he missed with his punch, the dude was going to run into him and, was, and he wasn't going to go anywhere. For me, I couldn't do that shit. I had to be perfect and strategic and surgical on everything I did. And, yes. uh, and, and but, but that was understanding and being like, where are the other surgeons like me that I get to play like? Well, and, and this is the point. Back with soldiers to sidelines and all these curriculums, why can't we inspire aspiring coaches to want to learn all this stuff? Think about how great you'd be as a coach to understand the difference of all this, evaluating talent, like really, not just because, oh, you remind me of somebody that was good sometimes. Understand like what the perils of comparison are like to the individual and to your team and why that's not okay. Understanding the biomechanics. If they had everything in your brain, John, right on top of like all the best technique and strategy and everything else, they could be great coaches. And then the people who are tasked with evaluating talent, should know this stuff as well. And I'm not trying to say that like I'm the best coach in the world or you're the best coach in the world because we know some of these things. All I'm saying is let's open up our minds to really learn all of the things that could make us the best possible coach we can be. And it's a practice. We're not going to arrive. We're always getting better. There's always going to be something that's going to challenge us. And uh, we, we should, we should commit to wanting to be the best. Very different than being on the biggest stage in the world. Yeah, and, just allowing people to be the best versions of themselves. And yes, this leads to my final question for you, Harrison. And it was a term that you dropped at the end of the presentation last night. And it was coaching scars. 
and this this dug deep. Uh, I have had some bad coaches in my athletic career. John's shared some stories in previous episodes of the podcast. But how important is it for your new coaches to understand the importance of their words and magnitude for these young athletes or older athletes that they're working with? It's absolutely massive. So what you'll see, Tex, if you decide to join us, tonight's going to be all across theories. It's all across theory. So we break down all sports into a concept of space, numbers, and time. John, I think you and I would like to have a whole other podcast on that. Um, just hearing you talk right now. Uh, but then we start to get into the six components of effective coaching. And we break that down into knowledge. I mean, there's three kinds of knowledge, knowledge of your craft, knowledge of yourself, and then knowledge of your personnel, candor, communication. We spend an entire day on communication, verbal, nonverbal, intent, all of this stuff. We talk about preparation. That's a big deal. And then we talk about environment. So we have these six components of effective coaching and like that really sets up like the premise of the soldiers of sidelines curriculum that's literally outlined in my book the everyday coach harnessing the magic of influence and the concept of coaching scars is in here that i got this i got this concept of coaching scars from coach matt doherty former head basketball coach at notre dame and head basketball coach at unc um and he is He's awesome. And, and he talks about the coaching scars that he left in his mistakes and how he wanted, has been on this path to get better over time. And if you want to learn more about coaching scars and the impact and like how to mitigate those, uh, again, the everyday coach harnessing the magic of influence, we, we go into all of these concepts, but uh, yeah, be on the lookout for coaching scars. Uh, you know, because a scar is a wound that heals, but it leaves a mark. And we don't want to do that to any players. So in 20 years from now, we want the majority of the folks, well, we want all of the folks that we interact with to always be like, man, that guy was really helped me out. I have a lot of great things to say about him. And we never want to be the one 20 years from now where it's like, yeah, that guy hurt me bad. And I never want to play sports again because that guy is such an asshole. Ah, oh, man, I had a lot of bad coaches. Yeah. And, um, but you know what, um, at the time, and I, I think this is, uh, like, so, um, this is something I went, whenever people ask me, like, you know, was there anything that kind of surprised you a little about parenting? And I, I also go with, it's kind of like owning a dog, like having an animal, like you come home and you've had a bad day and your dog is like, you know, like comes running in and you're pissed and mad and like, you know, Hey, don't, you know, you get mad at him or, you know, he does something. He doesn't know at all what else happened out there. He just knows that you're mad and he's the, the catalyst for it. Your kid's the same thing. Like you might have a shitty day at work or deal with a bunch of other stuff and you come home and your kids, you know, they internalize it. They think, well, I must've done something. And so I think what happens all too often with young athletes is coaches are wrestling with their own shortcomings, their own failures, their own you know, lack of success, and their own maybe insecurities. And as a player, you just see this one input-output and you have this kind of relationship. You don't know what's going on in this guy's life in any way. And his way to channel this fucking negativity or all the bullshit in his life is by being a fucking asshole to you. And all you know is this coach doesn't like me. This coach is, is, says terrible things to me and treats me poorly, not realizing that, you know, this guy might have just got fired from his job. He might have a drinking problem. You know, his wife might hate him. I mean, all of these other things that are going on behind the scenes that he doesn't like, hey, 
I'm going to, you know, I know I'm being tough on you, but like, I got a lot of shit going on in my mind. He never comes out and says that. And so then as a, you know, as a player, all of a sudden, you know, you realize like, you know, this guy, uh, you know, what, whatever's going on in this life. And I think that happens with age as you start to get older, like you realize, you know, even at the time, you know, you think your parents are infalli- infallible. And then as you get older, you realize that your parents were just people doing the best they could with the information and the tools that they had at that very moment and that they made mistakes and they said stupid shit and they said things they shouldn't have, or they did things, you know, whatever. And you basically like realize that they're just people trying to survive. But that, that moment of clarity doesn't come until you're a little older. And then you look back when you were like, you know, I've told the story. Like I had a a fucking asshole of a basketball coach when I was about 10 or 11 and the guy like kicked a ball at us and he used to do a bunch of like stupid shit to us and basically told me I was the worst fucking athlete he'd ever seen. (laughs) And, uh, Oh no, I I was thinking I was like maybe, uh, 12 or 13. I was like maybe seventh or eighth grade and I was going to go play football. And he said, next year when you go play football, you're not even going to play. They're going to cut you. And you're never going to fucking play football because you're a piece of shit. And this guy was such an asshole. And uh, it was funny. After I got a scholarship to Berkeley, I saw him. My brother and I were out somewhere and we saw it. And I was like, hey, that's that motherfucker. And we went over and talked to him. You know, like, we actually, we were going to go beat his ass and the dude ran away. Um, but like the thought that you could be so rude and so hurtful to a kid that four years later, he, you know, at that point, or at that time, I'm like 6'4", 250. All of a sudden, this dude who's got a football scholarship that I talked to poorly shows up and is ready to beat your ass, and you got to fucking run for your life, and then that dude goes and plays a decade in the NFL. Like, that was pretty interesting, and I remember my brother and I just talking about it, and he's like, you know, he's like, uh, uh, that dude had a whole bunch of other shit going on in his life, it just the problem was that he had uh, he had the opportunity to work for kids that he put all that shit on, and you never have the right to put that shit on kids. Correct. So, so think about this, man. You're talking about this coaching scar decades later. Yeah. That's how much power a coach has. Thirty right? years. And and what we say is, you know, you can't coach other people until you know yourself first. You have to work on yourself before you can proactively influence anybody else. And that's one of the parts of, of knowledge and effective coaching is learning how to do that. And then you said the last part, our book is called the everyday coach harnessing the magic of influence because we're all coaches every single day in every aspect of our life, whether we realize it or not. And all this really comes back down to is human behavior and how we interact with each other. Do you want to be positively and proactively influencing the outcome? So it's, you're going to achieve what you hope to, or are you going to be completely reactionary and just leave a wake of shrapnel everywhere, creating scars where people then 30 years later, like that guy's an asshole. If I see him in the bar, I'm going to beat his ass. Yeah. Right. You have a choice. We all have a choice to do that in everything that we do. And the best news is there, there are ways to do this. There, this is being explored for years it's not like I wrote this. I read all the other books and then compiled it into 184 pages. Like this is all somebody but else's stuff. I, I think what's, what's interesting. And I, and I, I imagine you talk about this at great length is the magnitude that you have to influence individuals as a coach. And that, yeah. you know, just like everything you have, you're the opportunity to use it for good or for bad. And, you know, like all of a sudden you go out there and uh, you've had a bad day and you put that on some kid and all of a sudden now it ruins his experience and he doesn't play anymore. And, um, you know, uh, like my daughter plays basketball, uh, she's nine. And so I, I, I go to all the practices and games and, um, you know, yesterday she was struggling and I was like, just slow it down. Like, just take your time, go nice and easy. And her coach, and I was kind of sitting like on the side when they were kind of shooting and her coach, like, 
who's, who's a super nice dude, is like, just slow down. And I tried, and I even went over and talked to him. I'm like, Jamie really, who's my daughter, um, she's kind of a pleaser. Like, she, she needs to know that, that, that you're in her corner. And he's like, I, I get that. And he's like, she just rushes everything. I'm like, she's impulsive. Like every other nine-year-old kid, to try to teach patience to a nine-year-old is like, you know, fucking trying to uh, ascend Mount Everest without oxygen. And it's pretty interesting to like to see that. And then like, you know, and, and as we're riding home in the car, she's like frustrated. I'm like, you know, I've played sports my entire life and played at a high level. And the things that I'm telling you aren't just magical, like that I'm making them <laughs> up. Like these are practical things. Like if you take your time and practice, like, and learn the technique to do it, like all of a sudden you get in games and it'll just be automatic. And uh, I, I think sometimes she's like, shut up, old man. Or, you know, he doesn't know. And, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's it's something that's that's really needed and and uh I'm, I'm stoked that you're out there influencing coaches who get a chance to influence um, all these individuals and harrison this is i feel it's a very important episode and following it we have an interview with dr rachel larson at oh. arizona state university so local to you oh yeah and she's received a big grant to research uh veteran suicide and i feel that soldiers to sideline is a great opportunity for people once they hear your message and then we learn from Rachel that if they know someone who needs purpose, opportunity, hey, what sport did they play growing up? Reach out and then find them or send them to to you, your team and what you're doing. And then my friend Johanna Zabel, she's a your sports performance coach. So there is even, even a weightlifting coaching speed performance component to this. So you get this specific sport coaching then the performance side of things. There's there's so much impact and opportunity through your organization, man. So I was excited to connect with you, and then we're very grateful that you're able to to join us today for an awesome conversation where we said, ah, 30 minutes, all right. Yeah, we'll be fine. No, <laughs> hey, yeah, thanks, thanks for taking the time coming on Power Athlete Radio. Really appreciate it. And uh, if people want to get a hold of you or want to learn more, where should they go? Uh, soldiers to sidelines.org, S-O-L-D-I-E-R-S, T-O, sidelines, S-I-D-E-L-I-N-E-S dot org. Uh, that's our website. Um, you can look me up on LinkedIn too, just Harrison Bernstein, uh, part of Soldiers Sidelines. You'll, you'll see us there. Um, although I think my LinkedIn just got hacked this morning. Yeah, so don't go to it. So just hedge up there. Bunch of dick pics. <laughs> uh, and anyway, uh, that's how you can get a hold of me. And I just thank you so much for having me on. I, you know, guys, if there wasn't time and we weren't COVID, I would, I would love to hang out with you in that room all day and just explore all these topics. It's just fascinating. Well, we will save that for another day in person. In so Phoenix is a place that is yeah, frequented. I'm, I'm a big fan so. of, uh, and um, I have a theory that this whole thing's going to be over in about 90 days. Anyway, yeah. thank you for joining us here. <laughs> Harrison. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll send your people your way. We'll link all this in the show notes, man. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Harrison Bernstein at Soldiers to Sidelines on Instagram or visit soldierstosidelines.org. Until next time, bye! Bye!